Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone, and welcome to My Millennial Money Professional. My name is Dev Raga, and in this episode, we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Nicole Higgins, who's the president of the RACGP. That's the Royal Australasian College of General Practice, which is basically a professional body that represents the general practice profession across the nation of Australia and New Zealand. So without further ado, welcome, Dr. Higgins. Yeah. Hi, Dev. How are you? Not bad. Thank you. Not bad. Um, I understand you've just um, come off a Health of a Nation sort of report that's just been released a couple of days ago. We will go into that in this episode. Let's get started. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to send them to me. Remember, the three main aims is education, empowerment, and entertainment. Now, is it okay, Dr. Higgins, for the rest of the episode, can I call you Nicole? Absolutely. The only time I'm usually doctor is when I go to the bank. <laughs> okay, right. Fantastic. So, thank you very much for sharing your time uh, uh, today. I just want for the people that are non-doctors and non-healthcare workers that listen in, what does the RACGP do? What is the role of the RACGP? So the RACGP represents general practice and there are 43,000 GPs and GPs in training in Australia. And traditionally, it has been around education, training and standards to help GPs look after their patients. But increasingly, it's around advocacy, so being a voice for our members. And we are also involved in policy and research. Okay. So just to be clear, the RACGP is not a function or subsidiary or different organisation of the AMA because the Australian Medical Association, my understanding, is also a body that kind of represents all doctors, but it's not related, is it? No, it's not. It is really quite confusing for people. The AMA represents all types of different doctors and is not specific to GPs. And to be honest, they've only got a very small, I think, proportion of uh, GPs or members, whereas for us, we're there as the voice for all GPs in Australia. So within that, what does the president do within that organisation? Is it literally like the president of a company or is it a corporation or organisation, similar sort of role? Yeah, so RACGP is a member-based organisation and my role is to represent the members into the college. So I am the external voice, I am the representative to government, to our stakeholders, but I'm also a director on the board, which means I need to have very high-level governance skills as well. So it's quite a complex role and increasingly involved with uh, advocacy to government on behalf of the profession. Okay, cool. No worries. Um, And what's the term like for presidents? Is it like two or three terms? Uh, Is that two or three years, beg your pardon? Or is it like a fixed term? How does that work? Yeah, at the moment, it is a fixed two-year term. So it's a bit of a sprint. It's not a marathon. And it is one of the things that we're looking at about how to make sure that we have continuity of leadership within the college and RACGP. But at the moment, it's two years. And once it's done, it's... uh, it's finished. So I'm halfway through my term. Okay. 
So it's 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 interesting. It's quite a short term. So uh, I suppose you know two years. Yes, it is. You know, it is two years, but it's it's not a very long time in a position to be able to you know presumably you've got a fair bit on your plate. Like you said, it's more of a sprint rather than a marathon. So that's interesting. I wasn't aware it was two years. I always thought it was three years for some weird reason. Yeah, it's only two years. and But it means that you need to come into it literally with your skates on and have a very broad knowledge, existing relationships, understanding of the profession and be able to step in. And especially at the moment when primary care and medicine in general is going through reform, that's the challenge. Right. Now, the Health of the Nation report has just come out a couple of days ago. I did have a squiz at it very, very briefly. These are the three stats that's been sort of documented in it, which being a GP myself, being a doctor, I was actually quite surprised. So one of the stats that came out of it was that general practice represents only 6.5% of the total government health expenditure, which surprised me because I I, I didn't think we were the majority, but I, I thought maybe around the sort of 10 to 15%. So that was interesting. And I think a lot of healthcare workers listening in will be quite surprised by how low that funding is compared to the entire health expenditure. The other interesting stat is the concept of bulk billing, which we'll go into in terms of rebates a bit later. But in the space of a year, from 2022 to 2023, I think it is, the number of proportion of GP consults or bulk billing all of their patients literally halved from 24% in 2022 to just 12% in 2023. So that figure also shocked and surprised me because when I turn on the TV, a lot of the time what the message that that I get from, from our representative leaders is that from politicians is that bulk billing is like 80% of the consults. So, but this says 12%. I'm just curious what your thoughts are about that. So people don't realise that general practice only accounts for 6.5% of the total healthcare budget. General practice is the foundation of our healthcare system. And we all know that if you don't make sure that the foundations are secure and safe, everything on top topples over. And that's what's happening. Because of the failure to invest in general practice with a Medicare freeze and poor indexation over the last 10 years and that money being you know, poured into our hospitals, the hospitals are now overflowing. We have ramping of our ambulances and we've got, assist, we've got general practice, which is also really struggling to cope now because of the lack of investment. Then when you talk about the patient rebate, so what people don't realise is that of really what bulk billing is. So the rebate is the patient's rebate. That is what a patient gets back from the government when they go and see a GP or a doctor. It is not the same as what the value of that care is. The problem is that rebate simply hasn't kept up with the cost of providing care and GPs can no longer afford to continue to subsidise that care. And so our as much as we have for a long time, we can't afford to continue bulk billing because it just doesn't keep our doors open. So general practice is increasingly uncoupling from Medicare and that's why the government brought in those changes on the 1st of November to try and, you know, really stop that decline. Yeah, so that, that those changes though, is, is that the triple incentive? Is that the, what, is that the one that you're talking about? Yep. So 
the, the difficulty has been is the patients who really need the care are most vulnerable are the ones who are least able to afford it and then the ones who aren't accessing, accessing care. So that's why bulk billing incentive was very targeted. What that's also done, though, is raise the floor price of senior GP. And if GPs, you know, bulk bill now, it is effectively more than a 50% discount on on what the recommended fee is and the cost of providing care. Right. So just just to clarify, just for the non-healthcare workers, what you mean by rebate, so so for, for someone who goes and sees a GP, a rebate is basically the money that gets deposited back into your account. I think most of the time it happens electronically. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So the rebate is what the patient gets back from the government when you go and see a doctor. Now that rebate if the doctor says, well, that's enough, I'll accept that, that's what bulk billing is. The problem is, yeah, now that we, we know that that simply, you know, has not been indexed, we've had a freeze for 10 years, it is, just hasn't kept up with the cost of providing care. Right. So essentially, to use an analogy, is it's, it's like rocking up to a builder and saying, can you build a house, but can you do it in 2013 costs. And of course, the builder would say, well, that's crazy because now everything has gone up in cost in terms of the materials and labour, etc. And essentially, my sort of basic understanding is even though I'm a GP, I mainly work in the state public health system, is that what you're saying is GPs have just taken on the burden on themselves and just kept bulk billing people because, you know, it's kind of the right thing to do for people that can't afford to seek care. But essentially, in the last sort of couple of years, inflation, cost of providing care, everything skyrocketing, then it's led up to a point where that's a sort of uncoupling from the Medicare rebate versus the actual cost and value of the service provided. Exactly. So GPs have been subsidising care now for a long time, and we can no longer afford to do that. We've had more than 180 practices close uh, over the last couple of years, and one of the things I guess about GPs is, you know, they're pretty nice people and we, you know, we care very much for our patients and understand that sometimes people, you know, do struggle to access care or be able to pay for that. But that's unfortunately been at our own detriment. And now as we are start starting to uncouple from Medicare and value our worth and actually charge what it costs to keep our doors open people are now starting to realise that, oh, hang on, what, what happens if GP breaks? What happens if we don't have our GPs looking after our population? Everything else is going to start falling over. Mm. So can I, can I be the devil's advocate? Let's say someone's listening in and say, okay, well, if that's the case, why do we need a GP? So why do we need a robust primary care healthcare system, can you provide some sort of data or stats or sort of broad picture about why that's relevant and why Australia is unique? So for example, in other countries, you know, back in my home country, I was actually born in India. You don't need to see a GP to get a referral or you don't need to see a GP for primary care. If I've got, you know, cardiac problems, I should go straight to the cardiologist. If a patient's wondering, well, why don't we have that system in Australia? So in Australia, we're actually trained as generalists. uh, And that means that we're trained to manage most conditions most of the time as as GPs. So we're already trained to do that role. The other role that we have is, you know, we refer to it as a gate a gatekeeper role. The health dollar is finite. And one of the things that's part of our training is to look at at value, to actually look at evidence 
and to approach this in a way that, okay, is this what is, is, is this something that is needed? But with consultation with the patient saying, okay, how do we navigate the system? It's really important that we also empower our patients to have control, but the health system's really complex and that's the role of the GP is to help people navigate it, but also to make sure that we do this in a way that looks after the funding and does it in a way that's evidence-based and safe. Yeah, fair enough. I, I suppose, I mean, I work, I work mainly in the hospital system and one of the things that I tell all my juniors is, you know, don't just randomly do tests because it's just easier. Like a rolled ankle, not all rolled ankles need x-rays. You know, not all chest pains need troponins because every test that we order as doctors costs money and that money is, you know, coming out of our own pockets and the pockets of the taxpayers because ultimately we are the guardians of the health dollar. Now, one of the things about the health of the nation sort of one of the main core topics was workforce shortages. So I think it's no secret that, I mean, I can't get into my GP because they're just fully booked. I mean, I have to book almost in advance three to four weeks and have appointments, uh, you know, and that's the waiting list to get into my GP. It seems to be that to get access to care uh, in general practice, um, certainly in Melbourne, but I'm sure across the nation, particularly in the rural areas, is getting harder and harder and harder. Is that purely due to workforce shortages? What are some of the challenges that we can expect moving forward? Yeah, so I might just step this back a little bit. In The first thing is that, you know, uh, one of the things that the health of the nation showed that nine out of 10 Australians see their GP every year. And for those Australians, the average is eight episodes of care, you know, where you touch base with your GP. What that's saying is that now GPs are looking after a population that is getting older and getting more complex because they've got a lot more medical problems. And that is actually now having a really uh, big impact on how we deliver care because we're also now spending longer with our patients. So that's starting to reduce access. The other thing that the Health of the Nation showed was that actually people can get into their GP really easy for urgent care. So 50% were able to see their GP within four hours for urgent problems and 60% within that day. The thing is what I define as urgent and what you know you or um, another patient defines as urgent are quite different. So, and is it accessing your GP or your practice? So we need to be really careful about the terminology because general practice really is still the most accessible form of primary health care. Okay. Yeah. I mean, when I say I couldn't get into my GP, it's it's my specific GP, but I suppose I could I could get access to another GP, you know, in that practice or maybe in a different practice. So that's that's a good point. So how do we, um, you know, we, we've got you know hundreds, if not thousands, of medical students listening in on this episode. What is your sort of message to them? Should they consider general practice? Because you know, overall, it's a very broad specialty, very diverse specialty, but you know, income's not as great as some of the other specialties. What, what's your message to our, you know, junior doctors or medical medical students or interns considering general practice or not even considering? What would you say to them? Yeah, so that was the other thing that came out of Health of the Nation. You know, GPs, we love what we do. We love our work. We love the diversity, our relationships. And it, the problem is that sometimes we're so caught up in doing what we do, we forget to tell everybody about how wonderful it is. But the problem is it hasn't been valued and it hasn't been funded. And now that's, you know, 
impacting our, our new medical graduates. The concern out of this report was that only 13, 13.1% of our new medical graduates are choosing general practice, which is down from 138 from last year, and that's significant. That is because, uh, once again, we need to actually tell the story of general practice, but we now need to say we as uh, as GPs, we share the first eight years of our training with our non-GP specialists, our cardiologists, our psychiatrists, paediatricians. But then after eight years, we branch off into the community to finish our training. And that is just as valuable as hospital-based training. And that's one of the things that we're calling on around funding to make sure that general practice is viewed as just as important, if not more so, than our non-GP specialties. Mm, it's it's interesting because I think when you sort of speak to and, and I look after you know students and junior doctors, um, yeah, general practice doesn't often come up as a number one specialty of choice. It's often it's often other specialties like surgery or uh, internal medicine, etc., comes up quite high on. Yeah. So so Dev, just on that, it's one of the things is you can't be what you can't see, right? So mm. when we start having a look at why aren't we attracting medical students, we need to start the start. We need to start even before they get into the uh, into medical school and at every touch point uh, during their medical training, we need to make sure that general practice and primary care is integrated. And it's not an optional extra, but people need to have exposure. The other drop-off is when people are in their intern years and those early hospital years, they lose contact with general practice. So we need to make sure that there's continuity through through exposure so that people understand and value what GP does and what we deliver. One of the rotations is, I'm pretty sure a lot of the hospital networks when you do internship, which is your mandatory, you know, mandatory year that you have to do to get general registration, a lot of hospitals don't offer general practice as a rotation, even as a resident. You really have to find your own rotations. Only some hospitals offer that. So that's a really good point because if you don't see what GPs do in the community, then how do you know what you're missing out on and what the pros and cons are? Yeah, and the other thing is when you're in the hospital system, right, you don't see what GPs keep out of the hospitals. You often Mm. only see um, either the you know, people in emergency or distress or the failures. But it's like us in GP, we sometimes see the problems that are in emergency, for example, but we don't see all of the successes. So we really need to make sure that across all the professions that we actually have respect. And in the UK, they, you know, they have a system where you can't diss on another profession. And I think that's also going to be really important. Mm, That's interesting. Now, we'll just take a quick break. And when we come back with Dr. Higgins, who's the president of the RACGP, I've got a couple of other questions in relation to the actual name general practice and also cost of healthcare. And would rebate fixes, you know, how's it going to um, be fixed with rural patients, for example, who um, often get the same rebate as our Metro colleagues? And also, we'll talk a little bit about capitation is at a risk. We'll be right back after this break. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. All right, welcome back. We've got um, Dr. Nicole Higgins, who's the president of the RACGP, which is a professional body that represents general practitioners across Australia and New Zealand. Now, here's a segue. We talked about general practice and non-GP specialists. What about the name general practice? I've been very vocal about this um, uh, online, on social media platforms. I don't particularly like the term general practice because if you're general in something, are you a specialist? And this is more coming into sort of Optics. We know that general practitioners are specialists because you need to do vocational training. You need to do entrance exams. You need to do exit exams. And for those non-medics out there, basically what that means is once you finish medical school, internship, residency, then you have to do more training to become a GP. You don't just become a GP. So my question is, what do you think about the name general practice? Is that Are we shooting ourselves in the foot here or is that something that's going to persist? I'm just curious. Uh, look here. I, I think this is a real opportune time as we're going through a, a reform of primary care uh, to look at the, the term of general practice and what that means. Uh, look, this comes up every few years where we sit and you know do a bit of navel gazing and think about okay, what's what's our name? And I think there are you know I think one of the things that we've seen is our rural generalists have rebranded, so that's in our rural space. And that's actually made general practice really attractive. So we need to think about what, who we are, what we do and what we deliver and, you know, are we going to be a community care physician or a primary care physician? I think there is an opportunity now to actually relook and go, what, what is the brand of GP and what are the messages that we're trying to tell our patients, our government, our funders about who we are and what we do? And overseas, a lot the term is often family doctor. A bit concerned about that term as well because that actually excludes a lot of people as well. Um, whereas what we do, we're a primary care physician. We are trained to be generalists who, as you said, are a specialist, which becomes a bit of an oxymoron and it confuses people. Yeah, it's a good point. I think it comes up every now and again you know, the, the term general practice. Uh, what's interesting is, you know, the general surgeon, for example, some colleagues don't like the term general surgeon who are surgeons. They sort of call themselves uh, a general surgeon with a subspecialty, for example. Do you, think, do you think general practice will kind of become similar where a GP may say, I'm a GP, but I actually have a subspecialty in skin or subspecialty in obstetrics or subspecialty in paediatrics or emergency. Do, do you think that that's the sort of 
way that we are headed moving forward in Australia? Look, we've already we've already gone there. Uh, it's not headed. That that's where we are. So we do have GPs with special interests, and they are in areas that are something that they have a passion for and a knowledge for. But the important thing is to recognise that they come from a generalist base, and they can apply the skills that they've learnt to that specific interest. And the other thing is that that interest uh, may only be something that they do one or two days a week. So one of the one of the great things about general practice is that we don't actually have to be defined by particular rules. It is a place where we can create our own adventure and allow our careers to take us into different places. But we need to make sure that everything comes back to we are generalists by training we understand all of the different systems, whether it be the person, whether it be the regulatory systems, whether it be the communities we work in. What we need to make sure is that we, the, I guess the risk is if we start, you know, continually specialise off into other areas, it creates a space and a vacuum for others to fill. So we need to make sure that we still are GPs first and foremost or generalists and then part of what we do is that, that special area. Mm. I, I was speaking to a colleague about this just a couple of days ago and, and, and they mentioned, you know, if you're a GP peds, does that mean, you know, after the age of 18 you offload all of your patients to another GP who's like a GP adult physician? So it gets a bit tricky but I'll take your point. I mean, got to be a generalist first but if you have a special interest then RACGP has uh, a few special interest groups already. I think that's that's coming up which is great. Well, there's, I was going to say, Dev, there's actually 37 of them and of specific interest groups and these are people that have a passion for particular areas, whether it be women's health, neurodiversity. And what it's what it does though is it allows people to embed those specific interests within general practice and then it creates an environment to upskill the rest of us. And so diabetes, for example, the specific interest group for diabetes has got 3,000 members. What that means, that's the biggest diabetes group, if you like, within Australia. These are GPs. They practice medicine. It means they don't just look at diabetes. They will look at every other condition that comes through the doors of general practice, but they are there to support other GPs to be the best they can. So, you know, double-edged sword, but I think it's really important as GPs that we allow people to develop their interests, but their roots are firmly within being a generalist. Now, circling back to the rebates issue, which um, which I wanted to ask about, if you're a patient in a rural area in Australia, my understanding is currently the rebate for that patient is exactly the same amount as the person that's sitting in Metro Melbourne or Metro City anywhere in Australia. Is that a fair system? Is that something that needs to be looked at? Because the cost of providing healthcare to rural patients and the cost of healthcare to the patient is often higher due to multi multitude of factors. I mean, the obvious factor is, you know, lack of workforce. I mean, I think rural workforce is about 50% on 100,000 population compared to metro workforce. So this whole rebate sort of, can it fix everything? Does there need to be MMM-based uh, rebates where if you work in a rural area, patients get a higher rebate? Is that something that's considered? 
Uh, so I, I, I speak as somebody who works in a regional area in North Queensland. So, you know, I'm a 10 to 12 hour drive down to my capital city. And what's available to me is very different to what's available to somebody who's in, in Melbourne or in Ballarat or Newcastle, for example. We need to make sure that we have equity amongst our patients, irrespective of their postcode. Uh, or their income. And what we also know is that the spend on rural and regional patients is much less than our urban patients. So the rebate, that's the incentive is part of that uh, to make sure that those who are, once again, this comes back to bulk billing though, if you bulk build, you, you know, the practice gets more, but we know that that doesn't cost, you know, cover the cost of care. The ch- and this is the challenge within fee-for-service and we need to make sure that we have sticks instead of, you know, the barriers for people to access care. We also know that our rural and regional patients have got much higher morbidity mortalities, meaning that they don't live as healthy and they don't live as long. So we need to think, okay, where do we need to invest and we need to make sure we front load general practice. And sometimes fee-for-service in rural and regional areas is actually not the best way to do that. And that probably leads us into the next part of the conversation is about how we do that. Mm, which, which is, I was going to say, is a good segue for salaried doctors, right? Salaried general practitioners. So, you know, for, for context for non-healthcare people listening in, if you work in a hospital, you get a wage usually in a public hospital system. For GPs, because they're not in a hospital system, it's funded all through usually a fee-for-service arrangement, which is usually through the federally funded Medicare system. Um, but of course, GPs are independent contractors, so they charge what they see, what their value is. So has a has to be a bit of a mix, do you think, in terms of rural metro? I mean, if you go more rural, is salary GP an option? Does the government sort of step in and subsidise part of that cost to provide that healthcare? Yeah, so one of the things that's now happening in rural and regional Australia, you'll start hearing the term market failure. And market failure is saying that GPs are leaving rural and now regional areas uh, because they can't afford to continue to subsidise care because the fee-for-service model is not supporting them. And this is really challenging because we need to make sure that we get money into the system to keep the GPs there because once you take a GP out of a a rural area, you actually completely uh, disrupt the whole ecosystem because it's your GP and that's there as, as the anchor if you have a GP, you can attract a teacher, you can attract the police officer, your your council people. So we need to make sure that those people who are working rurally are adequately remunerated like our you know, urban and regional counterparts to continue providing care to keep those communities alive. And, and that's the challenge because fee-for-service uh, in those areas hasn't always worked. Mm, yeah, I, I, I service a community which um, has a reasonable sort of travelling population and a holiday destination. And some of the common questions that I get from patients in the emergency sector is, what's the access to healthcare like in this particular place? What's the access to GP like? Which is actually quite difficult where I work because GPs are just fully booked and just trying to attract 
GPs to come in that sort of rural space uh, has been quite challenging. There's a high turnover. And like you said, because it, it is not becoming more and more sustainable, you know, GPs are, are voting with their feet. They're sort of leaving that sort of rural remote area, which means the person that's living in those areas has less access to care. And with that comes more morbidity, more mortality and poorer outcomes. So it's it's a real concern. And of course, I work in the hospital system. Uh, I'm a GP. It is in my vested interest that our GP colleagues are supported in the community because otherwise, you know, where would they end up? They'd end up in the hospital system, which is which is not a great place to be for primary care. We, we don't do it well in the primary care setting at all uh, in the hospital system. No, and I, th- I and I think this is now where where we're heading is that yes, we still have feed for service, which is always going to be central to our system about how we do things in Australia. But we actually need to fund the team that supports the GPs, and that has to be in general practice. And that funding is going to be separate to fee for service. And Unfortunately, you know, it, it costs a lot of money, you know, to be able to employ, whether it be your practice nurse, your allied health professionals, your pharmacist in general practice. But the one thing is that we actually have the systems already in place and the structures in place for the government to be able to do that, but we need the funding to follow it. Here's a question for you, and, and this is a question that I got from a few people when I said I'm going to interview Dr Higgins. There's a lot of concern amongst GPs about the whole capitation model, uh, the NHS-style general practice system, where my understanding of the NHS is basically uh, a patient is required to register to their local GP in the local area so they don't really get much of a choice on who they see, and also GPs working very long hours and seeing you know number of patients uh, beyond their capacity. And basically, they just get a block funded. So they just get like, you know, a set amount of money and you do what you want with it and you need to provide a service for your community. I guess the problem with that is, which is which is what a lot of UK GPs I suspect are leaving the UK and sort of coming to Australia to the fee-for-service model, is you get overworked, you get kind of underpaid. Is is that a risk in Australia? I mean, is, is capitation a risk? Because that gets thrown around a lot. Yeah. So one of the things about capitation, I actually really like the definition of it. And it means a direct uniform tax imposed upon each person. That's that's not our system. It's not going to be our system. And what we have is the opportunity to, you know, have our model within Australia. You know, on one side we've got the NHS and the other we've got US. So they're both capitated systems, but one's government, one's private insurers. That's not us. That's not where we're going to land. We know what we don't want. What we do want is to continue having fee-for-service as, uh, you know, the central model which drives innovation, it drives access and allows, you know, some levers around cost control. But we also need to be able to add payments on top of that to supplement around our, our teams and to be able to... Um, they're called whips and pips. So everything in medicine has acronyms. So our workforce incentive and our practice incentives, to be able to employ people to deliver that care, but we actually do need government help for that. And that that's where the opportunity is to actually, how do we get extra funding into general practice? What do we want it for? And what's the outcome that we want from it? So the outcome is we want to 
deliver better care. We're saying that we actually need more support to do it, so we actually are going to need government funding. However, we want to retain control and be able to have autonomy and independence, and that is what fee-for-service is. Very different from the NHS, and it's very different from the US system. And the flip side is coming back to the workforce shortages in the rural areas. Does that mean, I'm just curious what your opinion is, you know, would it be a system where where fee-for-service in rural remote areas doesn't really work well because, you know, the cost of providing healthcare is significant and therefore the fees have to be significant and it's not really a viable model, you know, would it be in the future a possibility or even an option where health networks, which are state-funded, have a hospital-based GP practice in this sort of rural remote areas whereby, you know, GPs are just salaried, patients basically go to their local hospital for general practice care. Of course, there's always private GPs in the area available. Is that something that you see happening in Australia where there's a sort of hybrid model of fee-for-service versus, you know, state systems getting into the general practice? Because traditionally, state systems don't get into general practice. It's usually run privately through the federal system. Yeah, uh, so a bit of a warning notice here that's already happening. We need to be really careful about public hospitals doing general practice. What makes general practice so special is continuity of care. It's our relationships with our patients and we don't want to step into a FIFO model, which is a fly-in, fly-out model where we lose continuity. And when we come back to basics... The GP who is embedded in the community is somebody who delivers care more than, you know, just it's not transactional, it's relational. And we have to think about the systems that we want in the future and we can never trade off access for quality and safety. So that's that's the line we have to follow. And the model of care that we do have in Australia actually works. The problem is it's not funded to deliver what we need. Really appreciate Dr. Higgins for coming on the finance podcast, My Millennium Money Professional. Actually, I actually haven't asked you a finance question. So here's my question to you, actually, just just (laughs) on the whim. Um, So I talk to a lot of GPs uh, via this podcast and should financial literacy education programs be provided to doctors? Because currently I, I don't think there's an official program for doctors in medical school or um, I don't think there's a program in, in specialist colleges. What do you think about that? Because there's a fair bit of appetite for it and a lot of doctors get into trouble with their money and finances because they do some really silly things with them. I'm just curious, is that something that you would consider from an RACGP perspective? Um, my comments are hallelujah and absolutely as a practice owner, I had to upskill myself in accounting, in business, and we need to make sure that sometimes what happens, we focus so much on our patients that we lose our sense of self and who we are and how we provide for us and our families. And I think it's really important that we actually understand and have financial literacy, which is very different from a health system or a health literacy perspective. So I think it's really important that we understand the business of general practice, the business of medicine, and and thanks, Deb, because this is, you know, the purpose of 
this podcast is about understanding who we are in the health ecosystem, but also making sure that we are financially safe and stable as well. No, well said. Absolutely. Oh, look, I'm really passionate about it. If there's any GP out there, if the college wants me to do a session, absolutely. I'm absolutely delighted to do that. I love talking about money. And I always say money is important. It is not the most important thing in your life. It is important and just use it as a tool to make your life and the lives of people around you a lot better. That's all we have time for. Uh, Once again, thank you, Dr. Higgins from the RACGP, who's now the current president, uh, really taking up their time with us and spending a good 40, 45 minutes answering some interesting questions and hopefully some insight into what a GP does, what the RACGP does, what the president does, and some of the challenges we face as healthcare workers and how we fit into the ecosystem of healthcare in this country. Now, remember to leave a five-star rating and all of my podcast. Uh, if you use it on Apple Podcasts, that's preferred, but otherwise on all of the platforms, that's even better. Uh, the more reviews and ratings you leave, the better it is for other people to find it. And until next time, my name's Dev Raga. This is My Millennium Money Professional, and please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. 